So tonight, I would, I would like to uh, look a little at some quotes about what the Buddha says about loving kindness and the practice of loving kindness. And so here, this is a quote where the Buddha talks to his son, who became a monk, and that's some advice he gives him. Rahula, develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on compassion. For when you develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on appreciative joy. For when you develop meditation on appreciative joy, any discontent will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on equanimity. For when you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion will be abandoned. And so basically, this is referring to what is called the four Brahma Vihara, also translated as the four heavenly abode. And so the first one is loving kindness, next one compassion, next one appreciative joy, next one equanimity. And so for each, you have specific phrases. And what I asked you to do today, suggested, was more like what I call shortcut. You had one sentence from loving kindness, one sentence from compassion, and then one sentence from equanimity. And the Buddha suggested to do these practices because he saw they could have a certain effect on different uh, emotion. So loving kindness, he saw it as dissolving ill will. When we kind of um, feel kind of kind of somebody is going to get us when we kind of in advance I kind of have a little aggressivity when we kind of look negatively. And he saw that if we cultivated loving kindness, then in a way our mind, our body mind would go more in that direction and then we could see people in a more benign way instead of straight away kind of being coming with this ill will. And actually he also thought that loving kindness would help with fear. Because again, it would show us that maybe we don't have to be afraid of everything. Because again, we would have a more benign feeling about experience. Then compassion is so as being an antidote to cruelty. Because compassion is in a way to really see the other, really see the suffering of the other. And if you really see the other and is or suffering, or it's suffering, you cannot be cruel. And I think that's the way cruelty generally starts, is when you abstract the person, abstract a group of people, and then you put them at a distance. And then you can easily find justification to be cruel. But if you really are with the suffering, of the person in that moment and open to it, have empathy for it, then you cannot. Then the next one is appreciative joy. And this is a very interesting meditation 
And this is a meditation where you are encouraged to appreciate what is good in your life and to appreciate what is good in others' life. And I had a friend, for a month she did that, and she said at the end of the month, she felt so different. The way she related to her life was so different. Instead of before feeling like, what is it I am missing in my life, comparing negatively with others, then she's starting to actually see, be so aware of what she had in her life, what was positive, what was uh, the lot of the good things that were in her life. And then she actually was very interesting. She stopped that negative comparing by realizing there were more things in her life than she thought. And then the last one, and then that's why the appreciative joy will dissolve discontent, will dissolve this feeling, I am missing something. And that you have the feeling somebody is more interesting, has a better life, or something is better somewhere. But that actually it is not so bad here and now. And the last one is equanimity. And equanimity helps us to have less of that reaction to negative reaction, aversion, pushing away, and in a way being more with. And that's a quality we'll work with a bit tomorrow in the meditation. So I won't go more into it. Then another quote. If a grudge arises toward any person, then one should cultivate loving kindness toward that person or compassion toward that person or equanimity to the, toward that person. And in that way, one can dissolve the grudge toward that person. So it's kind of, the Buddha here is saying that if we feel resentful, then it suggests try loving kindness. If that doesn't work, try compassion. If that doesn't work, try equanimity. And in a way, grudge, resentment is interesting because I think this is something we really have to be careful when we do meditation, when we cultivate mindfulness. Because with the yatabuntam, I must accept things as they are, we can easily brush things under the carpet. You know, somebody said something and does something and you think, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Second time, it's fine. <laughs> and then third time, you explode. And so, of course, the Buddha said, you know, try to bring loving kindness. But we again have to be careful not to use loving kindness as brushing things under the carpet because that's not going to help with the resentment or the grudge. So I think there is a difference with using this idea as opening the moment so that we can creatively engage with what is happening or using this idea as more like a repressing thing, kind of pushing thing away, <coughs> not addressing certain things. And that's not going to work because then generally it comes up back up again. So it's kind of a little for us to reflect. If I feel resentful, how could loving kindness help me? 
I mean, loving kindness could help in remembering that possibly that person is not always nasty or not always making mistakes. But maybe that point they made a mistake and how can you address a mistake? Or with compassion to see, oh yes, the people is suffering. And since they're suffering and that's what makes them be that way, how can I talk to them in a way they could hear without feeling aggressed and then having more suffering? Equanimity. If something happened, how can possibly equanimity make us see that possibly right now I really cannot say anything? Because in the heat of the situation, this is not going to improve. But maybe tomorrow I could try to address the situation. Or in a week I could try to address the situation when there is less heat. And if I can find the right, the appropriate way to speak about this. So there is less heat, but we can try to see what is a problem, what is a condition. And the last quote I wanted to look at was this one where the Buddha is actually giving us kind of like a little uh, pub, a, a little kind of PR for loving kindness. And so he's saying, if you practice loving kindness, you are going to certain advantages are to be expected from the release of the heart by cultivating thought of loving kindness, by increasing this thought, by regarding loving kindness as a vehicle, regarding loving kindness as something to be treasured, by living in conformity with loving kindness, by putting this idea into practice, and by establishing loving kindness. So like it's kind of saying, you know, He's not just saying, you know, just have one loving kindness thought. He's saying, you know, by really trying to cultivate, to practice it, to feel kind of that it's kind of working, to experience it. So he's kind of saying, you know, try it out. And then he said, if you really try it out, and if you really do it, then you're going to have some benefit. And then here are some of the benefits. (laughs) You will be able to sleep in comfort. You will be able to awake in comfort. You will not have any nightmare. You will be dear to human beings. Your mind will be able to concentrate more quickly. Your countenance will be serene. Why not? (laughs) What not to do if that are the benefits? And then I wanted to say something about love. And in a way, to look at this quality. And I think loving kindness is a way kind of trying to cultivate in some way that quality. And I would say love is essential for human being. But if we bring meditation to it, if we bring the past to it, Actually, what we're looking at is what I would call creative, wise love. And often, in spiritual circle, there is talks about non-grasping, non-attachment, 
And often people will ask, but then if you have non-grasping and non-attachment, how can you love anything? Then <laughs> I even have somebody saying to me, how can I even love coffee? You know, I must stop loving coffee. And I don't think so. I think the fact that you don't grasp doesn't mean that you cannot love or you cannot care. I would actually say the less you grasp, the more able you are to love and to care. And I would say grasping is actually an obstacle to this creative wise love. And so I would say in love and why it's important, we are opening to others, but we're also opening to life. And we then kind of cultivate this caring for others, caring for life, and also this appreciation for others, appreciation for life. And in that, we can really relate to the life and to the world. And what is interesting with love is its texture, that actually love has a texture. And I would say the texture of love is warmth. If you love something, how do you feel? For example, I love snow. I mean, in France, I live in the southwest of France, there is rarely snow, maybe once every two years. And so when I see the snow, the white flakes falling, I feel, woo, snow, you know. And generally, I feel uplifted. I feel warm from seeing the snow. I love my niece. If I see my niece, oh, my niece, and I feel warm. If I see my cat, oh, my little cat, <laughs> I feel warm. So... Generally, it has. Love has this warmth and this uplift. It kind of really, and I think that's why it's quite uh, enriching, nurturing to the whole human being. And then what is interesting, if we reflect on it, is that a lot of the time, we don't love ourselves. Which then you have this strange situation when we are relatively self-centered and then we kind of, kind of also stuck with this self we don't like. <laughs> and at the same time, because it's us, we can't get rid of it. So we kind of like stuck with this kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, what's going on? But if you turned it around, if you were able to love yourself, I mean, you would not have to go anywhere. You would be warm all the time. You had the possibility to be uplifted all the time. So I think this is something we have to really look at. And that's where the loving kindness starts with the self. So that we can really experience that feeling toward ourselves, which I think will help us also to have more that feeling toward others. And I really could see that with my grandmother because she, really, she used to really love me. And so whenever I came back from traveling, the first moment she would see me, she would be ecstatic. You're back! You know? Because I think whenever she saw me, she felt really warm really uplifted, really happy. So I had to, you know, sit next to her and spend some time with her. So she so uplifted with least a little while, last a little while. And then about two years before uh, she passed away, something happened. I think very likely something happened in the brain 
where suddenly that did not happen anymore. Like she would see me coming back and it was very blank, very blank. She could recognize me, but that's it. There was not that warmth. But she could still get the warmth from flowers and from animals. So that she would, when there was bloom, suddenly she would go into the garden, she would cut huge branches, and then she would bring them back to earth. Like, that seems to produce a warmth, and then there was something happening there. It was, I could really see it. Or with my uh, niece, little miniature rabbit. If the niece brought the rabbit with her, then she would sit next to the rabbit the whole time. Very interesting. Like being with the rabbit made her feel differently. Like there was again this warmth. She could connect still to the rabbit in that way. And that's when it showed me how important that feeling is, that warmth, that uplift, that lightness. But also what we have to be careful is that we often associate love with liking. And I am not so sure that love is necessarily associated with liking. And that's when I realized this when I was living in a community. And for many years I lived in community, 16 years, first in the monastery, then in a Western-style community. And what you realize over time is however Buddhist you are, however mindful you are, however loving kindness you develop, some people you like, some people you don't. You know, it's kind of like basic stuff. And generally, why don't you like them is because generally they don't think like you. That's what I observed, you know, that if people perceive like you, think like you, then in a way you are seeing the same reality. You are experiencing the same reality, and so it's much easier to connect. But if you have something who does something and you think, how could they do this? How could they think this? I, I could not even think that way. It's very hard to connect because you really, it's kind of like you're on two different planets. But what I realized is I did not need to like somebody to care for them. I did not need to like somebody to actually appreciate their existence. And to me, this was in a way the gift of living in community, to start to look at relationship in such a different way, to see that actually what was important was a living together. And of course, having that intention of uh, cultivating wisdom, compassion, getting together most of the time. You know, we could not always be totally happy together, but we generally could come back to happiness or acceptance or tolerance. And that was very interesting, living together. For me, this is one of the great training. It is not easy because we've not been trained to live together in that way. But I think we can learn a lot about caring for each other even if we don't agree, even if we not necessarily like each other. That was very interesting for me. And so nowadays, when we when 
meet each other after we were living together. Some of us, sometimes we meet each other. And we feel so much warmth to each other. When actually, when we were together, we, you know, often you had problem or difficulty or whatnot. But there is that connection, that warmth of knowing that human being, of caring for that human being. So in a way, if, when we look at our relationship with children, with family, with friends, with partner, I think there is that essential quality of love. But to see that the love, I would say, is not just a feeling. We have just such a romantic association with love, some so idealistic notion of love. But I think if we look at its different aspects, there is care, there is concern, there is appreciation, there is that warmth. And then in a way to see that in terms of the relationship, if we look at in terms of when we talk about grasping, not grasping, and often in the Buddhist spiritual circle, you, there is often that question, how can I love another person? If I love another person, am I not going to be attached to them? And then I cannot be uh, unattached. And then you start to have this idea of detachment. So you start to have this idea of detached love, like kind of a semi-detached house in England. You know? <laughs> and then what you end up is often having this kind of what I would call uninvolved love. I love you, but I cannot be involved with you. You know. <laughs> so basically, it ended up. But I, I, I love to have sex with you, but you know, after that, you know, no involvement. <laughs> Very interesting, where the thing kind of start and stop. And in a way to see, I would say not. I would say what is interesting with the practice, with the meditation, the mindfulness, is to see when we love somebody, when do we love them creatively, wisely, and when do we grasp? And then the question is, why do we, what do we grasp at? When we love someone, if we grasp, what are we grasping at? First, are we grasping at the person? To such an extent that we need to be with them all the time. That is what is interesting. I remember when I first married Stephen, I would stick to him. You know, he would sit at the table, I would sit next to him, sofa, sit next to him. <laughs> I, would, I would literally stick to him. And the poor thing, he felt a little crowded. <laughs> Until I realized this is not healthy. I mean, this is, you know, this is grasping. And then there was this other manifestation of grasping. I would sit in meditation, and then I would think, but what if Stephen dies? This is going to be terrible. And then I would go into all kinds of scenarios, but what I would do if he died? Then after the meditation, I would be kind of all kind of sad and look at you. What's the matter with you? And then I thought, yeah, what's the matter with me? You know, he's not dead yet. You know. <laughs> then I started to think, but what happens? What happens? And then I was kind of again. I saw I was grasping at the person. 
And then I use the questioning. And so, and then instead of thinking, what if Stevens dies? I thought, what if I die? And then I really could not care less what <laughs> happened. I was not going to be there, so who cared? <laughs> and then I totally stopped doing it. And I instead enjoyed the fact that he was here, you know, and that I could appreciate it. But to see how grasping at the person we generally lead to a fear about the presence or not of the person. Then you have grasping at the feeling. Grasping at the feeling you experience when you love somebody and somebody loves you. And then the thing is that then, if you grasp at the feeling, you want the feeling to be there all the time. But what if the feeling is not there? What do you do? And this you can see happening with uh, parents and children. And sometimes you hear of or you see in action a child, maybe a three years old or four years old, and saying to father or mother, I hate you. And generally the father, oh, you know. And in a way, for an adult to, to say that, it would mean, you know, like nearly I hate you forever after. But what is interesting with a child, within five minutes, it's kind of like they love you again. You know, like one moment they hate you, next minute they love you again. And then you can really see the fact that at that moment it looked like the feeling is not there. Doesn't mean that the child doesn't like the mother. Basically, the child is frustrated because he or she is not getting what he or she wants. And then generally things can be sorted out in some ways. So in a way to see that, do I grasp at the feeling? And then what if I have the impression the feeling is not there? Or we sometimes when we love and are loved by somebody, we might grasp at the value that the person gives us by loving us. And I think this is one of the gifts of love, the fact that somebody else sees us, somebody else appreciates us. But if we put all our value in the fact that somebody loves us, when the person is not there, where is the value? In a way, we kind of, you know, we are putting our value in something which is impermanent, either the person or the love of the person. So it's kind of very insecure. And that, in a way, that's why back again, if we could love ourselves first, then there would be, I think, more stability. And then we could love the other from, in a way, a place of security, stability, than a place of insecurity and instability. And so in a way, the, I would say love, in love there is this gift of acceptance. And then to, to look a little at our love. How do we love? And sometimes I feel, for example, if we look in terms of partners, you can have different kind of love, but one of them is conditional. 
I love you, but if you could only change this, then I will totally love you. <laughs> or until you totally change this, forget it. And that's, but how does it feel when somebody says that to us? I will only love you when that bit will be different. It feels a little kind of constraining. And also sometimes I feel with um, people who love each other, especially partners, especially couples, it's like the love is what I would call a count, counting, measuring love. You do this, fair enough, I do that. You don't do this, forget it. I'm not going to do that. If you do that one, okay, I'll move up a little bit. But a bigger one would be better for me to move just a little bit, you know. And for me, that's not love. This is kind of like when you start doing this, become very tricky. And I think the greatest gift we can give the other, that it be a child, a partner, or a family member, is to really accept fully the person as they are, to start from that basis. And then from that basis of acceptance from which trust can be built up, then we can work with what is difficult. But to work with what is difficult without that is very problematic. But if you really love the person, accept the person, then you can then look at the difficulty, but in a way to kind of see what are the conditions for this difficulty to arise. Because the person generally is not like that all the time. Generally, conditions give rise to it. And I think what we have to see is that, for example, with romantic love, you have the falling in love, where you have this huge, big feeling of love, and then it passes, like all things. And then you have to build the love. And that's really something we need to cultivate, like we would cultivate loving kindness, etc. We need to develop that love together. And then from that place, we can see that there is a feeling, the caring, the appreciation. And that's not the problem. But often, when people live together, what's a problem is a habit, is a pattern. That once the glow of the falling in love, which kind of makes everything quite magnified in a positive way, goes down, then generally you left with habits. My habits, your habits. And generally, you think your habits are better than them. <laughs> and then you generally think that if they loved me enough, they would change and adopt my habits. But they think the same. And what we have to see that in certain conditions, what happens is that we revert to what I would call survival habits. And generally, when things are stressful, you go back to survival mechanism, and generally you have different survival mechanisms. And that's, I think, in a way, loving someone is learning the others. They learn you, you learn them. And then you try to understand, to work with your different survival mechanisms. So in a way, looking at how we can cultivate, develop love, 
develop different relationship. And to me, that's when, the again, the meditation can be so helpful. Because often, and that's why I think the loving kindness can be useful, if we try to meet the human being. Because often we, we get habituated to people. We feel, I know this person. And often we relate not to the person, but to the idea of the person you have. So this composite image you have of the person, they like this, they like that. I'm not saying they not have a tendency to be like this or like that. But in a way, we are human beings. And in a way, trying to meet each other as human beings in this moment, instead of meeting the idea of the person. Because it's very hard to relate to the idea of the person, because the person changes anyway. And so in a way, to, to me, what really helps is actually the mindfulness, so really to be in the present of that person. And also to go, especially with family, to go beyond the role you might have in the family or the role the other person might have in the family. And to really reach out to the human being. And I think this is what really can make the difference in terms of relating with love, with care, with appreciation. And to me, I know that's where I was, you know, I had my breakthrough with my mother, is when I saw her not through the history we had before, and she's a very nice person, but to see her as a human being. And then I could see her in a, in again, in a more, in a bigger light. Instead of seeing her in abstraction, even though she was in front of me, I would relate to the person here and now, who sometimes is like this, sometimes is like that. And then I can adapt to what is going to be helpful in any situation. Sometimes she gets a little agitated, and then my job is not to be agitated. So I'm just calm, let's take, you know, I'll take care of this. And then generally just me, because if I reacted like in the old days, she gets agitated, I get agitated, <laughs> and it kind of just amplifies. But if I go back, use the meditation to just be there. Let's see how we can, you know, take care of this. One time I was cooking in the kitchen. I live upstairs, she lives downstairs, so I'm cooking in the kitchen. She comes up and she said to me, I've had an accident. But you cooking, continue to cook, never mind. <laughs> because for her, cooking is so important. And eating. So, so order from mom, continue cooking. So I continue to cook for about 13 seconds. I said, wait a minute. She told me she had an accident. So let go of the order, switch off the, the thing, stop cooking, and I go down. I said, okay, what happened? And then, you know, for the next half hour, I was with her checking what was happening, how she was and everything. But I could see it was interesting because first I was going into habit, you know, do this. Okay, I do that. And I think, wait a minute, that's not the way to respond here. But I had to consciously do something, not be taken over by the role, by the habit, by the, the way things could be related. And I think that's where the mindfulness, the meditation can really help us. That yes, we might 
for a few seconds back to automatic. And then we can move back to creative engagement. And I think that's what can be so useful in terms of relationship to others, to see how we can easily go into automatic, and then the mindfulness, the meditation can help us to, okay, wait a minute, this is getting into automatic, let's go back to this moment, the creative potential I can have in this moment to creatively engage. And so that's what, in a way, I would suggest that what you, I mean, also what you're doing here seems to maybe to be very self-referential and personal. But to me, actually, it really builds up the stability, the openness, so that when you go back into the world, you can be in your relationship in this more creatively wise love, more this creatively engaged way of being with the people, really seeing them as human beings, and yourself too, as a human being. So, that's what I wanted to say. Today, are there any <coughs> questions or comments? Mm -hmm. Something you said about mothers and non-attachment made me think of a, a friend who has a brother who um, uh, a few years ago became a Buddhist, and his mother has a problem. Well, a problem in a certain aspect with that. Uh, she, in, like in her words, she says that he's um, he's he's over enthusiastic about in his attachment to non-attachment, while um, it has made him, um, in many ways, less impulsive and less irritable. Uh, it's also made him less spontaneous and, and joyful. Um, and she says that he's he's become an observing machine, and she feels that. Uh, she, she misses her son. I, I, I don't know if you ever observed anything like this. Well, no, I think what is very important to see is that first it depends of the technique of meditation yeah. you, 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 you are using. <laughs> Secondly, it depends on the framework in which that technique of meditation is used and which emphasis is given on uh, what you are doing. And so that, I think, is a big part of it. That's one factor. Another factor is uh, how long you've been in the training. That sometime at the beginning, you, I would nearly say, over-enthusiastic, and so you generally take everything 150%. Generally, you have a little kind of balance who kind of goes back to possibly 75. But it very much depends also what you're trying to do. Because although the mother uh, might feel her son is not like he used to be, very likely the son at one level might feel better because he's not so impulsive, because he's not so angry anymore. So for him, it might be a big difference. And he might prefer himself that way than how he was before. But if he is that way, it might 
take something out. You see, I think this is one thing that uh, what you might not get, what, what happened, not with all meditation, it depends, but is that sometimes you can be like that. You go up, you go down, you go up, you go down. And what meditation can do is that things become more like that. So, I don't know if that's what's happening with the son, but for him, if things are like this, he might feel in himself that it's more peaceful. But the mother, I'm fairly sure she liked the high, and I'm fairly sure she was not happy when he was in the down. So now she's saying, well... I'm happy with not the high, but I, not the down, but I would still like. So, you see, you can't have both necessarily. You can't have both necessarily to that degree. I mean, it's a bit the same as if uh, you used to drink alcohol. And then for reason of health or whatever, you stop drinking alcohol. When you used to drink alcohol, you used to be as crazy as everybody. And everything was, you know, quite fun and exaggerated and things like that. And you were part of it. If you don't drink alcohol, you sit there and think, they're getting a bit boisterous and they're getting a little over the top. And you can't be over the top because you don't have that effect. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you cannot be cordial, you cannot be friendly, but you won't have that amplification, exaggeration, which kind of, in a way, feeds on itself. So I think you might lose something and you might gain something and possibly what you gain for the person, for the son, might be better than what he lost. So I think it's kind of also we have to see what one is trying to work with. I think that's also what we have to look at. Yes? Would you, would you make a distinction between loving kindness and compassion? Because I, I, I know the Dalai Lama is very hot on compassion. I got into doing um, Twitter, and he has a, you can tweet, Dalai Lama tweets every day. <laughs> and nearly every one of his messages is about you know, compassion is the key to world harmony, world peace, everything, you know, compassion, compassion, all living beings. So would you make a distinction between loving kindness? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, uh, again, I'm not sure that it's a Dalai Lama who tweets, so or if it's his secretary, but that's another story. <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I have had, uh, I don't know if I can reveal the secret, that, you know, I have had four, a foreword of my books written by the Dalai Lama, which actually I wrote myself, and he signed, but this is another story. This is another story. So, back to the Dalai Lama. Back to the loving. So, loving kindness, you see, in terms of the Brahma Vihara, loving kindness is wishing well. So, you see, each of the four Brahma Vihara put you in a slightly different direction. Loving kindness is about wishing happiness. It's about seeing happiness. It's kind of wishing well, 
uh, it's kind of looking a little at what is positive, kind of it's kind of turning toward what is positive, wishing well for others. Compassion is being with suffering. And that's why I don't, on the retreat, often I will not generally do, apart from my, just one phrase, may all beings be free from suffering, I will not do just compassion meditation. Because the problem with compassion meditation is that generally it makes you sad. Because it makes you aware of suffering. And then generally it can be tough for some people to kind of really experience this for a whole day. So that's what generally I don't do it on retreat. But I think we can incorporate it in a different way. So compassion is about being with suffering. Also one of the ideas of the Brahma Vihara about compassion is that being, back to what I was saying the other day, available to suffering. Seeing the suffering, seeing the other, bearing, being with the suffering. Then the sympathetic joy is to rejoice in your happiness and the happiness of others. And that is really about appreciation. You could say that loving kindness is about caring. Compassion is about being with suffering. Uh, The appreciative joy is about appreciation. And then the equanimity is about being balanced. So that's what the difference I would see between loving kindness and compassion is that it looks at different sides of the spectrum of life. One turns more toward the positive, the other one turns more toward the suffering. So that's what I would see. But I am not sure that the... Because you see, in the Tibetan tradition, you, have, you don't have the four Brahma-Viharas practiced in this way. They have, another, they have a different environment, different idea. So possibly when the Dalai Lama talks about compassion, he might put loving kindness in it. But in terms of the Brahma Viharas, there is a difference. I get the sense from the way he, he deals with it, it's more about a, a putting out, like an outpouring of compassion. <clears throat> possibly. Possibly. I mean, I think if one is with the Dalai Lama, what one can really fear is that he really sees you. He really sees all the person. And at the same time, you can really feel this warmth from him, this kind of lightness from him. So I think in him, you have different um, of this quality together. The same you would have in Desmond Tutu uh, of South Africa. Is the same, is a bit very similar that at one level is really compassionate, being really aware of suffering, and at the same time he has this amazing, bubbling, warm, light quality. So I think the two can be together in the person, in the way they are, in the way they manifest. Yes? The, the, the phrases, actually, I have them here. I have them here. Oops. So, okay. The phrases for appreciative joys are May my, may yours, may all being, good fortune continue. 
May my, your all beings, happiness not diminish. May I, your all beings, not be deprived of the attainment reached. That's a traditional phrase. Attainment reached. So it's kind of like being aware that you have achieved something, you have some attainment, you have some understanding and some insight. And may this not diminish. And then behind and then... No, I think both, because you see, if uh, so you're talking of somebody who has passed away, who has died. Yeah. yeah. Then you see, the thing we have to see is that somebody dies physically, but actually that person, I would say, still lives within us. The memory we have of them, the dream we have of them, what they brought us. And so I think, in a way, as I said this afternoon, it's fine to use a loving-kindness phrases. You know, may, but in a way, you might have to, to frame them in a different way. Again, you have to see what works for you. Is it just a feeling you have, like bringing the friend to mind and appreciating what that friend brought to your life, appreciating the life of that person, appreciating the goodness in that person? Or is it that, in a way, you wish for them to just be happy, to be at peace, to be free from suffering. I think you could also try the sentences. I think it's, again, how it's going to fit with yourself, how you can express the sentences. But I think totally, totally, because I think at one level the person has gone, but I think the person's action, life, reverberate still in the life of others. Good, and then we have... uh, to stop for some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.